welcome back, folks, to another season and episode of the Australian Jazz and Good Podcast. My name is David Galea, and I just want to say thank you to all those that have been so positive about season one. This season is set to be just as much fun with so much great music to present. Now, if you would like to get in touch with either some suggestions of artists that you would like to hear or interviewed, or if you have any music of your own, then please contact me at Australian Jazz and Group Podcast at gmail.com. Always happy to hear how people are liking the music and what they would like to hear. So, what do we have in store for episode one of season two? Well, today we'll be talking to Melbourne pianist and composer James Bowers, who has just released his first record entitled My Trio Album. And it features James on piano, bassist Marty Hollebeck on bass and Japanese drummer Shun Ishiwaka. Not only does he have this project, but James has worked with Angus and Julia Stone, Remy, Sex on Toast and Vogel Smash. So a great variety of musicians and music he's worked on. And today we'll be looking into this diverse musical palette by way of listening to his new recording. We will also hear a track from Adelaide bassist and composer Ross McHenry from his latest recording. But first, to kick us off, let's jump into a track from Melbourne group The Black Jesus Experience. The Black Jesus Experience are, as their website says, a 10-piece band playing danceable alloy of traditional Ethiopian song and 21st century grooves. Like the diverse backgrounds of its members, the BJX, as they like to be called, their music reflects the multicultural vibrancy of the band's hometown, which, as we said, is Melbourne, Australia. Now, these guys have played all throughout the globe with one notable gig in Glastonbury in 2011 and 2017, so they're very well-travelled. So this is a track from their 2020 album, To Know Without Knowing, and it's called Mulatu.
to the Wurundjeri people, the Bunurong, the Yoda Yoda, where we station. Devout out to the cooling nation, survivors of genocide and displacement in this modern day playpen. Too many fail to pay rent, not facing the urgency for decolonization. Music, the levitating force, of course, forth from the core, giving you more. VJX phenomenon, explore. Come on, feel the vibration, keep the lightning enlightened. Keep it glowing till the night's igniting. Get it on with a room and a mic and a heavyweight sound. Let you know you did the right thing. Sick of waiting for the future, what it might bring. I'ma strike till the soul's in sight. In a right with a megaphone, shout inviting. All of y'all to manifest this pipe dream. We on a quest to put the rest to the left, right wing. Buying every daily, keeping us fighting. When we ever gonna endeavor uniting? Right now with the bright sound, summer to the top. We don't stop. Wheeling for the dinner when you're feeling in the night. We obliged to untie on the fly. Eat the old flavor. Mulatto, we got you. Kicking the vibe. Major. Strong with the stamina. Fierce like lion. Laying it down. Wearing the crown. Come shine. Gravity divine. Even when we on the ground. Service to the mother like a sermon on the mound. Genie at the bottom. Filling the bowl. Lead, not follow. North swallow. A motto. Hollow. Confronting the mic. Saying I'ma say Ganalo. So that was the Black Jesus Experience from their 2020 release, To Know Without Knowing, in a track called Mulatu. So now we've come to our featured artist for this episode, and to introduce us to his music, let's listen to a track called Hellfire, taken from James Bauer's latest release, My Trio album, which, as we said, features James on piano, Marty Hollebeck on double bass, and Japanese drummer Shun Ishiwaka. So here is Hellfire.
James Bowers, welcome to the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's great to have you along and thanks for taking the time amongst this no crazy time. It's, it's actually, thankfully, it's been a while since I've had to fire up Zoom. I felt like six months ago, I was like, all I was doing was getting on Zoom every day and, you know, work, social stuff. It was all Zoom based. But thankfully, I've been living in the real world for at least most of 2021, which has been good. Great. Has music picked up for you? you started gigging at all or is it is there more gigs? Yeah, in the books? a lot of... Yeah, like a lot of local gigs recently. Like basically since the new year, it's sort of picked up pretty nicely. Normally January is a dead month for me. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, it's picked up. Still like um, a lot of national touring and stuff keeps getting pushed back. Every time there's a COVID scare, all of the bookers want to pull out and stuff. Yep. So that's just the nature of the beast for the time being. Yeah, cool. So reading your bio um, on your website and also what you sent me, you can tell that you've sure. worked with so many different people and this new recording you've just put out is a jazz, let's let's say for want of a better word, putting it in a box, yeah, a jazz, it's, it's jazz a, recording. It's good enough. It's close enough. Yeah. So how does the work that you do with all these other artists, I know you work with Angus and Julia Stone and a lot of other groups, how does uh-huh. that inform, how did that inform this new album? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I suppose, like, uh, something I try to bring to everything I do, and I think the reason why I've, you know, had, you know, any success at all is um, just trying to really stick to being honest with um, what I'm doing, like trying to really be sure about is this the sound that I'm trying to make? And if it's not hitting the mark in terms of my oral conception of it, trying to, you know, break down the barriers between what I currently know, what I need to know to be able to get to the, the sound that's in my head, I guess. So, I th- and I think that approach works regardless of what kind of music you're playing. So if, if all you're trying to do is, you know, um, be true to what you're hearing internally, that's, no, that's not a genre-specific thing. It just requires, I guess, that you have a bit of um, a pretty good understanding of what of a genre or whatever, you know, tonal palette you're trying to work with, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. No, it totally makes sense. And I noticed that you, on this new recording, which is, in, is entitled My Trio Album, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, really cool. So um, is this the first jazz recording, say, that you've put out under your name? Yeah, it's the first recording of any kind, really. Like, it's the first proper release. I've put out some sort of bedroom production stuff before, but nothing, nothing seriously and nothing with this kind of um, amount of effort and stuff put in like going to a proper studio you know getting it mastered by someone i really you know respect and you know just putting a bit of time and effort into it yeah right oh cool so the guys on the album did you want to just sort of run through who they are and i noticed you said in your thing that you wrote actually specifically with them in mind so could you talk a bit about that uh, as well yeah uh the guys on the album so marty is a old friend of mine he moves to melbourne he's originally from south australia um, and so are you, so, like, is that right? You originally from no, South Australia? No, right? I'm from, right. I'm Melbourne born. Melbourne born, right. Melbourne born. I've just played with a lot of people from South Australia for some reason. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's something about the way that South Australian jazz musicians make music that, I don't know, seems compatible with the way that I do apparently. Yeah, cool. Because I've just, I've played with an inordinate amount of South Australian people like Pat Teeley and um, Aaron McCullough, obviously. Yep. And is Hugh Stuckey from South Australia? I feel like he is. Not sure. Well, let's just say he is. 
Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Hugh, if you're not. Actually, <laughs> South Australia is a good place. I'm not sorry. Yeah, um, <laughs> great so, wine yeah, too. So I met, unbelievable wine. Um, so I met Marty when he moves to Melbourne, um, which was, I think, in 2012, maybe around then. Yep. Um, and for whatever reason, we ended up hanging out and we just sort of bonded over shared sort of musical um, focuses and passions. And also, like, we both, you know, just enjoyed having a laugh and we enjoyed this, you know, drinking nice beers, nice wines, going to eat nice food. Yeah, cool. And so there was there was a lot of connection points there. And so we quickly became, we kind of short-tracked our friendship to being, you know, pretty close and have been ever since. And so he moved to Japan in 20, I want to say 2019, but I think he lived there for quite a while in 2018 as well. Right. Um, but yeah, he's been there for the last couple of years. And so that's kind of the connection that I have going to Japan. So I ended up going there the first time on the way back home from a European tour with a band called Vaudeville Smash. Okay. Um, so they were they were um, uh, generous enough to sort of get me a ticket that was via Japan rather than just going straight back to, a, um, to Australia. Right. So that meant that I could essentially just go there and hang out with him for free. And it also meant that I could record on his debut album, which is called Trio One, which actually yeah. features the same band as mine. Yeah, I checked that out, and he's just—it's just great too. You can tell you have that similar yeah. that similar style of writing in that perspective. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of there's a lot of connections, and so through him I met Shun, and there's sort of a weird connection there because before even knowing Marty or anything, Shun somehow became like a really big fan of Australian jazz. Like he was a big fan of like Vada and Aaron Chulai and Barney McCall and Paul Grabowski. Yeah, right. And Scott Tinkler and all, like, he's he's like a real fan of Australian, especially Melbourne jazz. All right. Um, so he's like this fantastic, like, Japanese drummer, but there's this kind of connection in the way he kind of makes music to Australian music, which I think helped helped him and Marty, you know, kind of build quite a quick and um, strong musical relationship. And then as soon as, yeah, like, the first time we played together, I was like, ah, this is like, this is a really good feeling. It's like really effortlessly good. Like yeah. none of us were trying to make it work. It just worked straight away. And how important is that sort of vibe? We have talked about it a few times on the podcast with people. How important was that vibe to have a band feeling when you recorded the album? Well, it, it was important in that like it was, I think we played maybe, we did Marty's album dates, which was I think two days in the studio. Um, maybe it was just, I think it was two. And then we had a couple of gigs, maybe like two gigs as well while we were there. But the feeling that I got from playing with that band was enough that I came home and immediately wanted to write an entire album. So it was important in that sense. I think a lot of the people I've played with, um, I've been playing with for such a long time that it's hard to know what it would be like to play with them now for the first time. Yeah, okay. Because, you know, we kind of came up together and we, you know, when, when we started playing together, we didn't really have our shit together. And we kind of learned to put our shit together by, you know, um, playing together a lot. So, yeah, it's sort of a different vibe with some of the people I've, you know, worked with a lot. But, yeah, it's it's very cool to just walk into a situation and to instantly feel comfortable and, you know, at home. Yeah, that's awesome. So when you wrote for these guys, what particular things did you identify about these guys' musicianship that you wrote for? You've been able to sort um, of solidify what that is? 
yeah, uh, I think a few things would be, I think all three of us are very, um, like, easily excitable musically. Like, it doesn't take much for us to sort of go off on a tangent and follow, like, a bit like a, like a dog chasing a ball, you know? Like, if there's yeah. a, a stream that needs to be followed, all of us are willing to just throw everything away and just go after it. Um, so in that respect, I felt quite liberated to not have to dictate too much in, in the compositions. Like, everything was written quite, like, I don't feel like there's any dynamics on any of the charts and everything is, like, written as simply as possible while still, you know, being an actual composition with the, with the, tr- the trust and the faith that um, it would still be really interesting because... Each, each one of us is, you know, going to be continually offering, you know, new bits of information and new approaches and have new ideas in the moment. Yeah, right. So that was that freedom that you knew you had with those guys yeah, as well? Yeah, because everyone is very spontaneous and creative. Like Shun's an incredibly prolific songwriter and he's a, actually a really good piano player as well. Um, so he's just like a really musical guy. So having working with someone like that is very freeing in that, you kind of know that the more space you give them, the better the result is going to be. Yeah, right. Um, so I feel like sometimes... I think a lot of people, and myself included, like can often be too, um, too specific or too sure about what they want in that that can sometimes stifle individual players' creativity and their own voice a little bit. Um, and I tried not to do that with this with this record. I tried to just sort of have a vague idea of how each song would go, and I think that worked well because because these two people are such strong um, personal players. I could actually imagine what they would do in my head when I was at home writing it in Melbourne. Like I was, and very few like very few of the songs on the record actually turned out very different to what I expected. Like it mm-hmm. all kind of sounded roughly how I thought it would because. They're such, um, you know, idios- no, idiosyncratic is not the right word, unique kind of musicians. Like there's nothing cookie cutter or vanilla or out of the box about the way they play. They've got their own way of doing things. And so I was picturing that in my head the whole time while I was writing it.
I noticed um, with the some of the tracks, like even the first one, Bigger, Slightly Angrier Horse, you know, it's got yeah. – we often think of a jazz trio to be maybe in that sort of ECM vibe or a Bill Evans vibe yeah. or something, but it was – you could tell it was more of an aggressive approach to the trio. Yeah, for sure. And did you even have some distortion on your piano a little bit? Did you filter it through? Yeah. There? I could even hear I, a bit yeah, of that Yeah, I did. There. I actually mixed the record, so I had a, a lot of freedom with, you know, how I wanted to treat. Each song has, like, there's maybe two or three songs which have, like, a pretty similar profile, but I actually spent a lot of time, like, trying to make each song, I don't know, just work for my own vision, which is something I probably wouldn't have had the luxury of doing if I was paying someone to do it because doing that kind of stuff takes a lot of, you know, back and forth and a lot of um, troubleshooting and guesswork. Yeah, right. That actually raises a question in my head. How much does the mixing then become part of the compositional process? Well... It's a good question. I actually, when I set out to do it, I intended to do a lot more work on it than I did when I got back home in terms of not so much mixing as production kind of things. But the studio that I recorded at, it's called Studio Dede in Tokyo. Like, it was such a good studio. Like, it sounded so good that I kind of changed my mind and I just tried to leave it pretty natural sounding. Like, there was just, like... I think if I released it unmixed, basically, it would still sound pretty good. <laughs> like, it was just... Yeah, right. It was one of the best-sounding, you know, just desk mixes I've ever heard. Like, really, really good engineers and good gear and good rooms. Yeah, cool. I suppose the piano would have been... I know a lot of piano players often talk about the piano. Was that one yeah. of those moments when it was like, I just love playing on this piano? <laughs> yeah, I sat down to play the piano and played the first chord and I was like, oh, my God, this is going to be such a good day. Because you never know, like, even though it was like, it was a Steinway. But I, I've played some bad Steinways. But, yeah, this is a really, really good piano. Yeah. Oh, cool. Very good. So what is the plan for the album coming up? I know it's a bit of a challenging time and you've just released it. Or is mm. it out Is it out yeah. yet or is it coming out? Yeah, it's out. It came out on the 22nd. Of January. Um, of January, that's right, yeah. Yeah. So what's the plan um, for the album? Um, I've got a launch this Friday, actually, at Jazz Lab. Um, with Just give us the two date. local musicians. Yeah, what? the 29th of January. Sweet. At, um, at Jazz Lab. That's with uh, my friends James Gilligan and James McLean, who I've played with for a long, long time. It's the three James. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> we actually, um, yeah, we've played together since high school. Um, so it felt like a pretty natural, natural choice to get them to do it. James Gilligan actually plays electric bass rather than double, so that's a bit of a different vibe. But I felt like it was, I don't know, I, I, chose, I chose the player rather than the instrument in this. Yeah, I've heard James's latest album with Hugh Stuckey and it's just oh, am- true. amazing. It's beautiful. Yeah, so, yeah it's great, isn't it? Not losing that, anything having him on the gig. So is how has COVID, not that we've talked about it too much, but has it impacted too much on your, um, as a musician, like everyone else? Is it... Has it yeah. lost work? How has it been for you? Heaps of work, yeah. Um, I won't go into the maths of how much I lost, but it was yeah, a no. lot. <laughs> 2020, 2020 was shaping up to be like a really good year. Like a couple of... Um, I was meant to be doing the Alanis Morissette support tour with Julia Stone. Wow. And then a couple of other, you know, big Groove in the Moo tours and stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, that all fell away, but it'll come back. Yeah. Um, so it was just a, it was a year of just... Um, I don't know, getting getting into running and exercising regularly and getting better at cooking, really. Yeah, cool. 
Yeah, I spoke to a few people and they've said that motivation was something that they found hard with their music because of 2020. Yeah. Is that something that you, sure. you sort of found Very. hit you? Yeah, definitely. It was, it was tough. Like I kind of, I, you know, every time I was practicing, it's like I could sound great, but like what's the point? No one's going to hear me play for a yeah. very long time. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I, as sort of things come up, that does motivate me again to, you know, put yep. in the time. Because yeah. I wouldn't say I'm a particularly like, I don't practice because I love practicing. I practice because I love playing music and the music that I want to play requires, you know, a certain amount of, um, you know, dexterity and facility and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. So have you, did you have a chance to write any new music for the trio in this time? Uh, no, not for that trio. I wrote one song actually for my friend James Gilligan for his birthday. That's, that's all I've written so far in the break. Um, I think I was sort of, unfortunately, I was, I was kind of hoping to put out the record last year, but then uh, a label earshift that I wanted to put, put out the record through um, contacted me sort of a few weeks out being like, hey, I just checked out the record. It's really good. What would you think about delaying it a little bit and we can do this together? And that worked for me. So it's been pushed back a little. Um, but I think, I think that'll be worthwhile in the long run.
I usually ask this question at the beginning, but what was it that actually got you into playing jazz and that sort of a genre as you were growing up? Or was there a particular time you heard an album, a particular thing that just sort of went, wow, I've got to do this? Um, I, had a, I had a family friend, um, this guy called Charles. He was an American guy. He was like a big, one of those classic like jazz fans, like big record collection. And he would, every time he would come around because he knew I played piano, he'd give me like a couple of albums. And some memorable ones were like Miles Davis, um, Tribute to Jack Johnson and On the Corner. Oh, and like he gave me some of the early Herbie stuff, like um, like the classic ones. But I think also maybe he gave me Headhunters, which I like blew my mind, and some Oscar Peterson. And so just hearing that music and then slowly making the connection between uh, this classical piano that I'm playing, um, you know, might I could perhaps do something that was more interesting to me, that yeah. actually you know connected with the music I was listening to a bit more which was, um, yeah, a bit of jazz music, a bit of funk music. I, in fact, I guess what really got me into playing music was I started playing in a ska band. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Classic move. Yeah. No. Well, um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think playing live and playing with other people um, was a huge thing that kind of stopped, moved me from, you know, enjoying playing the piano now and then to being like, I want to take this really seriously and I want to, you know, get good, so yep. to speak. Yep. I know personally coming from playing the electric bass and then going into the double bass, it, it, mm. the electric bass you're really focused on, you come from that funk, pop, rock kind of background. Yeah. And then when you bring that into jazz, it gives you like a, you f- I felt like it was a really awesome way to come into jazz. Did you find that the funk thing sort of gave you a solid basis for time and rhythm and from coming into jazz that way as opposed to sort of coming in from a classical point of view? I wish... I wish I could say it did, but I've listened back to recordings of myself when I was really young, and my time was terrible. So, yeah, <laughs> I think I all think of us gave would me have the been. right idea. I, I I don't know if I executed it very well, but I think the my concept about groove and time, yeah, I think that did, definitely did help. It just yep. took me a few years to put it all together a bit better. I think we're all working on our time anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's a potential thing. Apparently, Herbie Hancock thinks that he has bad time. Really? Which is, yeah. He's, some interview he talks about, it, he's always been self-conscious about it. And did that... kind of a nice thing to hear. Yeah, it is. It shows that we are all imperfect. So, mm. <laughs> so did that Herbie sort of approach inform you for the whole sort of synthesize, synth sort of background of jazz as well? Because a lot of piano players are sort of either just piano or they have that synth thing. Did that inform you as well in that area of your playing? Um. Not so much. Like, I think I always liked it, but I think the reason I got into keyboard playing and synth playing and all this stuff was I, I really liked organ playing from a young age. Like, I liked, um, like, Stanton Moore's bands and those kind of, like, New okay. Orleans organ-based bands. And I had a band like that that I played in for a while. But then more of the synth thing came when I joined a band called Sex on Toast and I kind of got made to, like, he was like you need this sound at this point. I was like, oh, okay, I'm more of a piano player, but sure, I'll, I'll work it out. And from there, I just kind of, you know, just explored that more, more from the context I was thrown into rather than like a self-directed like desire to explore that stuff heaps. Yeah, right, so it came out of more of necessity then. Yeah, but once, once I sort of developed some um, comfort and some like, you know, ease of expression with synths and stuff, I definitely... Yeah, got right into it. 
So just looking at your album, is there a track on there mm. that you sort of just jumps out at you when you listen back to the album? I know often a track yeah, that comes out. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the strongest one that I – well, for me, at least as like a single track would probably be the second track, Pact of the Fiend, which yep. is um, – I put it up there on my band camp as like the preview, which I guess subconsciously means at least I think it's probably the one that people should hear. Yep. Um, yep. Yeah, and that was actually the first song that I wrote for the album. I remember I was getting in and like, I don't know if they're still a thing, but I was getting in an Uber pool and there were two other people in the Uber plus the driver. So there was four people in the car and I got in and I just had this idea for a riff. I was like, uh, you can't like, you can't make a recording of it now. This is, you're going to seem like a psycho, <laughs> but I ended up doing it. I remember I got my phone out. just really quietly sang into my phone, probably <laughs> seeming like a complete, completely deranged person, but I'm really glad I did because, um, you know, I really like the song now. Yeah, because it opens with a strong riff between you and the bass player, right? Yeah, like ba do do ba do ba do ba do boom. Um, and was yeah, that what you sang into your phone? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Did you get any so funny remember, looks in the car? <laughs> I I kind boom. of just avert I, I just averted their gaze and just like <laughs> kept to myself. I was embarrassed, but um, yeah. So from there, it was kind of like it was it was quite easy to write once you've got like. I guess my compositional process a lot of the time tends to be just whenever an idea comes to me, I'll get it down as quickly as possible. And if I'm feeling like I'm in the mood to compose, I'll keep keep following the thread or keep working on it. But if not, I'll make a voice memo of it. And then whenever I feel the urge to you know write something, I'll sit down and I'll just go through my voice memos and just see which one jumps out at me.
you wrote tunes, do they seem to evolve over a long period of time or do they just sort of, for you, it comes, you no. start and it's like comes. And it's you normally, I'll, it'll pretty much always be the initial idea comes and then if, I, if I'm feeling motivated, I'll finish it mostly there. But if not, I'll just shell the initial idea and go, okay, when you've got time, right. um, you'll finish it off. Um, yeah, pretty much all of the songs I'll tend to finish within like one or two ses- songwriting kind of sessions. Yeah, right. So how long did the album take to write really then? Um, I mean, I wasn't doing it full time, but yeah. <laughs> it, probably, it probably all got written over the course of a couple of months, maybe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I would have got back from Japan in like September and then I think I had it written before Christmas. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, the only song that didn't fit into that timeline is the la- is not the last track. It's called Maru Song, which is sort of a dedication to my wife. And I wrote that the day I was actually leaving because I sort of tend to get a little bit homesick when I'm going away. Yep. I was feeling like a bit anxious about, you know, the unknown, going to a foreign country alone. Um but I decided to sort of, you know, write a song to kind of capture the feeling of comfort of being at home and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it just kind of jumped out at me. So I quickly, quickly got on Sibelius and wrote that down. Yeah, cool. Um, and then did you make a special trip to Japan to record the album or were you uh, going? Yeah, out? I did. So it was for Marty's album launch. So that Trio One record. Plus um, I managed to find a day where we got to go into a studio and do it. It was pretty like, it sounded like, yeah, it, it was actually less stressful than I thought it would be making the album in a day. It's a real testament to how good Marty and Shun are that they were able to realise the music with very little rehearsals in just one day. Yeah, so do you think that sort of initial energy is what often makes a great take, you know, when you come in and there's no sort of preconceived idea and you just nail it out? That yeah. sort of energy comes out in your album? I think, I think for me, like as much as I want people to be open and free, I'm also like a bit of a perfectionist. So I think, I think having no preconceived idea, if there is any kind of element of complexity to the song is a bit of a recipe for disaster. Like there should be at least some understanding of the song, but I think an open-mindedness is also an integral part. Like it's a balancing act between being open, but also make sure that you are actually nailing the things that matter. Like there's a stop on beat three and please hit that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. That's non-negotiable. Like yeah. you can play whatever feel you want before that, but you do need to hit the stop. Yeah, yeah, I get it, yeah. Well, it's been awesome having a chat, James, about your new album. No and worries. Good luck for the gig coming up on the 29th of January with the boys. Thank you, the thank three, you. The three James at the Jazz Lab, is that correct? That's right, that's right. Yep, very cool. So this will be out after that gig, so I'm sure it was a great oh, no gig. no worries. <laughs> so... <laughs> Thanks again for being a part of the show and um, all the best for the next album, whenever that is. Nice one, man.
So that was Madu Song from James Bauer's latest release, My Trio Album. So that brings us to our last track for episode one of season two on the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast, and it's from a fine bassist and composer living in Adelaide, Ross McHenry, from his latest recording, Nothing Remains Unchanged. And this recording, folks, is absolutely killer. Ross has brought together a great band here that includes himself on electric bass, pianist Matthew Sheens, and New York-based musicians Eric Harland on drums and Ben Wendell on saxophone. So here it is, Complicated Us.
So that was Complicated Us from Ross McHenry's release, Nothing Remains Unchanged. And you could hear Eric Harlan and Ben Wendell absolutely burning on that track, along with pianist Matthew Sheen and Ross McHenry on bass. Killer track. Well, that is the end of our very first episode for season two of the Australian Jazz and Groove podcast. And it's been so much fun to kick this off again for 2021. And a big thank you to James Bowers for taking the time to talk about his latest recording, My Trio album. So as we say at the end of each episode, please go and buy the music that you've heard and that you've liked on the podcast. It's the best way that you can show your support and appreciation for these fine artists. So just Google the artist's name along with Bandcamp and you'll be able to get to where you need to buy these tracks. And also, if you like this podcast, please go and subscribe to it on whatever platform you use. Send us an email also at australianjazzandgroovepodcast at gmail.com for requests or to get in touch. That would be great. We love hearing requests and we love hearing your thoughts on the podcast and how we can make it better. So that's it, folks. Thanks for joining us and we will see you next time on the Australian Jazz and Group Podcast. Cheers. Cheers.